Welcome back to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole food plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today, I sit down with Dr. Chana Davis. She is a scientist and science advocate who loves helping people make healthy choices. She founded Fueled by Science in 2018 to fight health misinformation, share digestible science and credible resources, and teach others how to think like a scientist. Dr. Davis covers a wide range of topics, from food to toxins, public health, disease prevention, sustainability, and more recently, COVID-19. Dr. Davis is also passionate about helping others get more plants on their plate. She debunks common myths around plant-based diets, highlights exciting new plant-based alternatives, and even shares some of her family's favorite recipes. During graduate school, Dr. Davis focused on studying the human gut microbiome. She then spent a decade working in cancer research, diagnostics, and personalized medicine across nonprofit and biotech sectors. Dr. Chana Davis, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So let's get started. Um, I'm particularly interested in your background and your path toward plant-based nutrition. You studied genetics at Stanford. You researched genomics, uh, what biomarkers can tell us about our health and the human biome. So can you tell me what sparked your interest in this field of study and when you came across plant-based nutrition? Certainly. Well, I did my PhD in genetics, as you mentioned. I was in the lab of Dr. Pat Brown at Stanford. And he went on 10 years later or so to found Impossible Foods. So he was actually the one who sparked my interest in plant-based nutrition because he converted to become fully plant-based while I was in his lab. So I watched him on that journey and he just was amazing the way that he was running marathons and running this remarkable lab and doing it on a plant-based diet. So he was really the one that inspired me to try that out and has kept me um, has sort of mentored me, continues to mentor me in this field. So that's where it came. And for me, I, I had a, you know, a fairly up and down journey of going from vegetarian, which I already was to plant-based over kind of the next five, 10 years. But yeah, it's something that is interests me personally, because that's the path that I've chosen and an area where I feel like there's a real need for science-based information to reach the public. And you're known for uh, founding Fueled by Science where you tackle uh, nutrition misinformation, not just nutrition misinformation, misinformation in general. I was curious, what was the catalyst to push you to start that site? And when did you get things up and running? Yeah, so I started this site um, three to four years ago was when my career path took a turn. So after my uh, degree in genetics, I worked for about 10 years in cancer research, early detection, personalized therapeutics. And around the time I turned 40, was the time I took a step back. I also had twins around that time and just really gave myself the opportunity to ask what I was most passionate about doing and how I wanted to you know, make an impact. And I thought it was a perfect opportunity to marry my love of plant-based nutrition with my love of using science to fight misinformation. So it was really um, was and continues to be just a passion-driven project of mine to, to fight all the misinformation about plant-based diets and particularly to break down false barriers. And so you just kind of mentioned, you know, why, why mis fighting misinformation is so important to you, but do you have any insight into, I guess, what you think the most effective course of action 
is when you're fighting misinformation, I guess, is it, is it enough to just show people the facts? Because people, I guess, rely on things like personal anecdotes. I was curious mm-hmm. if, you, if you found maybe what you think is the most effective way to approach that type of conversation. That is a great question. I think the answer depends a lot on your audience. And uh, for, uh, you'll see on my website that I've also done a lot of work on COVID this last year. And what I've learned from that is it's really important to listen and to understand where someone's getting their information. This group that I collaborate with called Dear Pandemic, they've written a lot about how to talk to a conspiracy theorist, for example. And a lot of it really is about listening and about finding a credible resource that they connect with. So sometimes they might connect more with a celebrity than with the CDC. So you need to understand what their information sources are and and really... Uh, and really play to what they're going to actually connect with. Uh, I think the other the other part of it is just be patient. You can pretty much never change someone's mind in one conversation. You can just plant seeds. So I try to be very patient and in conversations that I have with people where they don't have the same beliefs and maybe have been misled. That's great. Uh, so in addition to in the show notes, just for our, our listeners, we'll add a link to uh, Fueled by Science, but we can also put in a link to uh, uh, Dear Pandemic too, so people mm-hmm. can get access that. On to one of the biggest questions that always comes up in conversation about nutrition is it's the question of protein. Mm-hmm. And since you're a geneticist, can you tell me how you, th- how you think about proteins, your approach and uh, what they are and how they're utilized in the body? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I love this question because I think when most people hear the word protein, they don't really have a a picture. I mean, maybe they picture a steak, but they don't have sort of a face for that word. And to me, as a geneticist, I'm picturing like physically what a protein is. It is a string of amino acids. It's basically like a bead necklace is one way to think about it. And, you know, they get folded up in fancy ways in the body. So to your first question, what is it? It is simply a string of amino acids. There are 20 different amino acids, and you can think of that as 20 different bead colors. And those are sort of woven together in different ways to make our whole protein, the whole complement of proteins in our bodies is all made from the same building blocks, but just assembled in different ways. Every organism on the planet uses the same 20 amino acids, whether it's a virus or whether it's a plant or whether it's an animal. So when you're looking at at comparing proteins between organisms, it's really just about which ones are these are they stringing together and in what combination. Just to just to clarify the mental the mental picture of proteins, the average protein is about 350 amino acids or 350 beads long. Proteins vary a lot in their complexity. Some proteins might be a repeat of the same three amino acids, you know, a hundred times. Other ones might have just a completely unique thread of amino acids strung together. So that's, that's the first question. What is it? What do they do? They do a whole different, you know, they do a whole host of things from actually serving as building blocks of your body. uh, As you, I'm sure you know about muscle protein, but similarly hair, nails, many parts of bodies are made from protein. Even more interesting, I think, is that the fact that they are basically little magical Oompa Loompas that do kind of chemistry inside your bodies. They act as alchemists and can convert one molecule into another. They, they can act as hormones. So they play a huge variety of functions in your body. Uh, I'd love to walk you through what I like to call bite to bicep, which is what happens um, when you eat protein and how are proteins built in your body? Cause I think this is understanding this basic process really helps you fight misinformation about protein. So what happens when you eat something that contains protein? Well, that 
those bead necklaces are intact in the living organism. They enter your body and your body basically has these little scissors that chop them up into little bits. So now in your digestive system, you've only got, you know, one or two beads attached together and they have to be that small before they can enter your bloodstream. So those little individual beads enter your bloodstream, they flow to the cells in your body and any cell that needs more amino acids can pick them up. Inside your cells, those amino acids are used as the building blocks to build new proteins or new bead necklaces. Of course, this is a vast oversimplification and there are many layers of nuance because amino acids can act not only as building blocks, but also as signals and different amino acids work in different ways in that regard. Uh, I also want to point out the distinction between essential and non-essential amino acids. So there are nine essential amino acids, and these are ones that your body cannot make from other molecules. So they must come directly from your diet. The other 11 amino acids, they can actually be made inside you through fancy metabolic conversions. So you mentioned at the top of that answer that when people visualize protein, they often think of steak. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when you, when we talk about plant-based diets, that's again, one of the biggest misconceptions is getting protein on a plant-based diet. So I guess Mm -hmm. the big question is, is it hard for plant-based eaters to get adequate protein? Well, the answer to that question is definitely no. And what I like to explain to people is that plants are living organisms and they must contain protein to live. They work the same way animals do. So every plant actually contains protein. So if you're eating a plant, you are eating protein. The standard amount of protein that's required just sort of as a basic level, you've probably heard this number 0.8 grams per kilogram that works out in, in terms of calories to about 10% of calories. So I I tend to, I like to use that, that benchmark because it helps us to look at different foods and see how much protein is in them. Most plants have at least 10% protein. If you eat a plant-based food, uh, whole grains and yeah, some, some of the whole grains will be 10 to 15%. Some of your foods that you think of as more protein rich, maybe 20, 25% when you're getting up to beans, some of the more plant rich foods are maybe 30, 35% soy and tofu. It's very few plants have under 10% protein. So if you think about it in that simplistic way, if your target is 10%, there's almost nothing you can eat to bring you below 10%. I often actually like to flip this question and say, what would it take to be protein deficient? You'd have to actually go out of your way to do that. So here's how you could do it. You could eat only fruit. Okay. Cause fruit only has about 5% protein. Fruit's very low in protein. That's um, that's a specialized organ that just has more, more sugar and carbs and not very much protein. It's not zero, but it's, it's under 10%, which is your bare minimum. So you could eat only fruit that would get you in trouble. You could eat only fat, like pure purified fats and oils, right? If you spent your whole day eating a a lot of oil, then you maybe not get enough protein because you're eating pure fat, or you could eat only starchy carbs like potatoes. Potatoes are actually around 10%. So they'd be borderline. You might even get enough just from eating all potatoes all day, but some other starchy grains are maybe a little bit below 10%. So you'd be cutting it close on that, on the all starch diet. But if you're eating a mix of plants, you, it's almost impossible to get under 10%. I think I'm covered then because potatoes are my favorite. So (laughs) baseline potatoes, and then I'm good. So what, what, what do you think about what, what's your opinion then on protein powder? Yeah. So protein powder, I, I guess maybe to go back to the last question on 
you know, can you get enough? You can, you can definitely get enough and it's easy to get enough on a plant-based diet. It's almost hard to not get enough, but the conversation about getting enough, you know, what you might often hear is, yeah, that's enough, you know, 10%, that's enough if you're on your deathbed and you're, and you're, you know, completely sedentary and, but you know, 10% is not really enough. I just want to address that first of all, to say it actually is enough for an average, moderately active person. Those studies on which that number is based, they weren't, people on their deathbeds who didn't move. They were just average, moderately active, healthy people. So it is enough, but there are contexts in which more protein is better. More protein can be advantageous. For example, if you're trying to actually put on muscle mass, there are lots of studies showing that if you're trying to build muscle, then you're going to want more protein, right? So that 10% is that's to maintain your current body as it is. If you want to actually grow your body, it makes sense that you need more protein to actually build more protein, right? In fact, when you're talking about building muscle protein plays two roles, it plays a role actually as the building block because you're you're actually going to get bigger, but it also serves as a signal to tell your body to make more protein. If you want to double the amount that's sort of the basic need and achieve that level, you can do it with plants, but it's going to be fairly restrictive, right? If you think about that that continuum I mentioned earlier of, you know, lower protein plant-based foods have five, 10%, higher protein ones have 30%. If you want to hit a 20% protein intake, you can't spend as much time on the 10% potato foods. You have to spend more time on the soy and beans side of the spectrum. That's where I think protein powders have a role to play. They just give you a bit more flexibility, particularly when you have a higher protein target. If you're someone who's going to benefit your, your particular goals are going to benefit from higher protein intake, you know, you, you can't eat a lot of, you know, starches and potatoes, unless you balance it with something that's really high protein, and then you're going to end up hitting that target. So I think they have a role to play. They're definitely not necessary, but they can buy you flexibility. If you're someone who's trying to um, consume a lot more. And there's really no harm in it. I did a little an article that I can share on this, you know, controversy around um, heavy metals. And it's true that plant-based proteins do have some heavy metals in them. But as one of my favorite mantras is the dose makes the poison. So in moderation, it's not an issue. But if, if you're consuming multiple scoops a day, I, I would caution to think about the pros and cons of that. In the context of strength training, I thought I would mention uh, a study that came out this year comparing a vegan diet to an omnivorous diet. And in this study, they took uh, 19 vegans and 19 omnivores, and they all had them consume the same amount of protein. They were consuming what's uh, 1.6 grams per kilogram per day, which is basically double what you normally would need, but it's considered to be an optimal intake for strength training. So they all consumed the same amount. They all strength trained and followed the same program for 12 weeks. Then they tracked their strength gains and their muscle mass gains. And guess what? No difference. So this to me just reinforces the point that it's actually the amount of protein that matters more than the source. When you're talking about just the protein, right? The protein package matters health-wise, but when it comes from just a mechanistic perspective, protein is protein to a large extent. Different proteins will have different sort of profiles of how quickly they enter your bloodstream and are absorbed. There are some nuances there that I, I don't want to disregard completely, but from big picture of building strength and building muscle, 
the same amount of protein, whether it's from whey, which is considered the gold standard, or whether it's from soy in this case, does not seem to be different. And there's actually a 2018 meta-analysis that says the same thing. I have a study I can add to the notes here that they looked at six studies of soy supplementation um, and 23 studies of whey. And there was really no difference in outcomes, whether you were consuming soy or whey in the context of gains of muscle mass or strength. It is the amount, not the source that's going to determine your gains. Of course, your training, your training program is really what matters. But when it comes to protein source, whey is not actually proven to be superior. The cool thing about that study that I just told you, the, the first one that came out this year is it was done by a group who wanted whey to win. It wasn't done by oh, vegans. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Oh, okay. I, I'll so was, say that. Was it funded by like... It was, was it? done in Stuart Phillips's lab and they have, they've been funded in the past by, I don't know if it's dairy or meat. So they, den- they tend to be a very pro way group yeah. and they even state in the study, we hypothesized that an exclusive plant-based diet would be less effective in supporting resistance trained muscle adaptation. So they, that was their hypothesis and they were not able to prove it. I love oh, that. Wow. <laughs> I think part of the reason this hypothesis exists is because of the specific amino acid profile of whey protein is thought to be more stimulatory, but it turns out that what happens in these short-term studies. So this group had done a lot of short-term studies where they would feed protein and watch the protein synthesis getting turned on in the cells. But it turns out that those very short-term, very controlled studies of how much did protein synthesis get turned on doesn't really translate to, you know, what happens over a period of weeks. So you made it really clear that on a plant-based diet, you can get enough protein. That's not, that's not really an issue, but there's another misconception floating around about protein combining, I guess, on a Mm plant-based diet that uh, you have to go out of your way. You mentioned the amino acids, they go in as like a necklace and then they break apart and then they recomprise. Mm -hmm. Um, But different foods have different amounts of amino acids. So there's Mm -hmm. this there's this uh, misconception that you have to combine, you know, things like beans and rice to get the proper amount of amino acids. Um, Yes. What can you tell me about that? And the whole idea behind what's considered like a complete or high quality protein. Yeah. This is an interesting one. Um, It's worth looking up the history of it um, because it's this myth sort of started it it is a myth, first of all, and I'll tell you why, but um, it started with a good, with a good intent and like all, like many myths, there is a kernel of truth. So the kernel of truth in this is that different um, groups of plant-based foods tend to have different amino acids that are higher and lower. And I like the term Achilles heel. So some, the grains tend to share a common sort of Achilles heel, the, the amino acid that is the lowest and beans share a different, um, have a different Achilles heel or a different limiting amino acid. And so as long as you're eating both, they kind of line up again to flip the question. Is it possible to end up deficient for an amino acid? To me, that's the question. What would it take to end up deficient on a plant-based diet for a specific amino acid? Really the only way to do it, first of all, is to not get enough protein total, right? Then you can easily end up deficient. If you're getting enough protein, really the only way to end up deficient there is to only eat basically a single food, like let's say rice, for example, the lowest amino acid in rice is lysine. So, so some plant-based foods have a suboptimal level of a certain amino acid, but it's def it's never missing. It's always there. It's just a little bit low, right? So if you wanted to get a hundred percent, you could either eat more protein, which is more than the minimum protein, right? Um, Or you can just 
pair it with a food that has even more. What would it, again, bringing the question back to what would it take to end up being deficient? There is a real situation. There is a real case here. If you're in a developing world and you're eating only rice, that is a problem because you could potentially end up low on lysine because rice, it's not missing lysine. It's just a little bit lower than we'd like it to be. And so if you're getting barely enough protein, and there's one amino acid that's a little bit lower than you want it to be together. That adds up with not being enough. And that's why they actually have, um, I don't know its current status, but I know there was work on developing a genetically modified rice that had higher lysine levels because of the situation in the developing world. Now, most of us are not only eating rice. So that's, it's just not a practical reality in the Western world where we are eating in many cases enough or more than enough protein, and we're not getting it from a single source. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So you're eating, a, just eating a variety of foods really covers the basis. Yeah. Uh, I think the other, the other point to make clear about this is this timing has been very much overblown. You actually, as I explained earlier, so when you digest a protein, you have amino acid sort of beads in your blood. Within your muscles, actually, you're also constantly breaking down and rebuilding proteins. Proteins, there's a lot of protein recycling that happens in your body. So at any given moment, even if you're fasting, you probably have what's called free amino acids or just little beads floating around in your blood. So those building blocks are always there. You don't have to worry at every meal to get every amino acid because you have this very large buffer pool of free amino acids. That's a consequence of your natural protein turnover or protein recycling that's happening all the time. Okay. So then if you if you eat a meal and you take in amino acids and then mm-hmm. your body's trying to build another protein and mm-hmm. you're, you know, you got suboptimal amount of this one amino acid, that means yeah. that the, the proteins that are cycling through your blood, it can just grab those. And exactly. Okay. So when you're, when your body's building a new protein, it's not just grabbing the protein from that meal. In fact, let's say that meal has 20 grams of protein in it. Guess what? You probably have an 80 gram amino acid pool in you already just because okay. of the protein turnover. So another protein particularly right now that's popular, um, is, is collagen. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole idea around consuming it for its, uh, quote, de-aging benefits. Uh, what can you mm-hmm. tell me about collagen and this fad? Yeah, I can tell you, I am not a fan of taking a collagen supplement. And really the reason it doesn't make sense is just the basic biology that I explained earlier about bite to bicep, right? If you're consuming a collagen package, it's not going to go directly into your skin as it is. You don't get to choose when you consume a protein, how your body uses it. So what's going to happen is it's going to get broken down into amino acids or into little beads. And then those little beads are going to go taken up by whatever cell to make whatever protein they want to make. You can't choose where it goes. And I think the message, um, one thing I like to say is that, you know, if you want to grow more hair, do you eat hair? No, that's not how it works. It, you, you don't, it's not that you need to eat meat to get muscles. You don't need to eat fingernails to grow fingernails. It's just, it's all just raw material that your body is using to build the way it wants to. And if you want to change what your body makes, if you want to, for example, grow more hair, like a male, you have a a balding issue. You treat it by actually giving a signal to your hair cells to turn on hair growth. If you want to influence the proteins that are made, you need to impact the signaling, not the raw material, because the raw material, that pool, it's always there. So you've, you've done a really good job of explaining that there's, that there's enough protein in plants that uh, plants have proteins too. Uh, but, you know, even with the meat being framed as the more, having more quality proteins, 
that's not necessarily the case so long as you're eating a wide variety of proteins. But I am curious now what kind of data we have and what you can tell us about the difference if you if we actually stack up plant-based proteins versus animal-based protein. Mm-hmm. Honestly, they're not as different. The proteins themselves are not as different as they're made out to be. As I mentioned earlier, whether you're talking about a protein in a virus, a protein in a bacteria, protein in a human, protein in a plant, they are all using the same 20 amino acids, just combining them in different ways. The big difference is what's called the protein package. So the protein themselves are very similar, but they come in a different context. And I think the context of the protein is a much bigger driver of the health differences that we see between plant-based diets and meat centric diets. As I'm sure this audience knows when you're eating, you know, a whole plant, you're going to be getting a lot of fiber. You're going to get antioxidants, a bunch of, you know, vitamins and minerals. And when you're eating meat, there are upsides to meat too, in terms of like some, there'll be some good things in there that you'll get lots of iron, whatever there's meat will have a lot of positive nutrients, but it also can have some negative nutritional consequences. Um, in terms of saturated fat uh, being the biggest, most notable one. So to be honest, we don't actually know why meat has poor health outcomes. The saturated fat beyond the saturated fat. So the saturated fat is pretty clear because you can do experiments and see how that changes your LDL cholesterol. And we know that there's a link between LDL cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. But when you get beyond that into TMAO and heme, those are all just theories. So it's, we don't really know what's, it's probably multiple things going on, but just bringing it back to the original question, it's not the actual protein. It's what else is in the meat and what else is in the plant that is driving the health differences when you consume the two, which is why you also can't really paint all meat with the same brush or all plant-based foods with the same brush, even if they have the same protein content. Okay. That's interesting. So we have, so you're saying we, we have the data, the data is clear that saturated fat yeah. is, is definitely mm-hmm. a, an issue w- when you're consuming meat, but in terms of yeah. the other things like heme iron, what data, I guess, what's the data that we have for the saturated fat? What type of data is it where you can like clearly say, here's what this is doing compared to what we have for, for like heme iron. And that is it mechanistic type studies. Mm-hmm. Is it- I'm really glad you asked that question because I think it's important to help people understand how to pressure test a health claim, like the claim that cardiovascular risk is influenced by saturated fat. So as you know, I'm a geneticist by training and I'm learning nutrition as I go. I'm using my fundamental knowledge of biology and my understanding of how scientific studies are done to pressure test claims like this. And I think anyone can do this. It just takes practice. So I'm not going to give you one study that, you know, that provides a definitive case, because really the answer is always about a mosaic of evidence. So I can I can walk you through um, how I kind of approach this question for saturated fat and cardiovascular disease and maybe contrast that with uh, heme iron and colorectal cancer. So the first thing I always do is look at expert consensus. So when it comes to saturated fat and cardiovascular disease, there is a consensus. The relevant experts do agree that reducing saturated fat, particularly replacing it with unsaturated fats, is a positive thing for cardiovascular health. And when I talk about relevant experts, I want to look at the WHO, and then I usually look at relevant disease bodies, for example, um, American Heart Association or you know Heart Health UK, um, Canadian 
heart health organizations. So I want to look at all of those. And if they all agree, that gives me a good sense that this is probably real. I also typically look at um, a Cochrane review. So that's an organization that does independent meta-analyses and looks across studies to find, again, to integrate the entire mosaic of evidence because that's what matters most. So what I'm, if I want to dig more deeply into a question, as, as I have done with saturated fats and cardiovascular disease and heme and colorectal cancer, what I usually do is kind of look at both sides of the argument. I want to look at how strong is the scientific case and how strong is the counter argument. And when we're looking at the first part of that, how strong is the scientific case, I want to see mechanism, as you talked about, um, that really speaks to how does this actually work, you know, in the case of... Um, saturated fats and cardiovascular disease, you know, how is it that saturated fats in your diet influence your blood lipids? How is it that blood lipids then influence cardiovascular risk? And all of those steps have, have clear, um, are clearly articulated how those things, how that process develops. Then there's always a layer of animal studies. So can we, can we make this happen in animals that kind of that's often a way that we sort of pressure test a mechanism. And uh, then we get into human studies and these come in two types. There's usually observational studies and ideally there's also interventional studies. So observational studies are studies simply of people who are eating what they would normally eat and you're looking for correlations. You're looking for do people who tend to eat more saturated fat tend to have more cardiovascular disease? Do people who tend to eat less saturated fat, more unsaturated fats tend to have lower cardiovascular risk? And this is definitely true for cardiovascular disease. There's a lot of compelling and consistent observational data. In the case of cardiovascular disease and saturated fats, there's also compelling interventional studies. So an interventional study is one where we actually tell people what to eat and then we watch what happens. And these are really important because observational studies are often subject to something called confounding, which is that, you know, it's not the same people who are eating more saturated fat and less saturated fat. And they may, there's probably other differences between those populations as well. So you can't always in, in conclude that a correlation is due to a causal link. So for interventional studies, um, those often come in two flavors. And we have both of those for cardiovascular disease and saturated fats. We have short-term studies and... Again, a short-term study is one where usually it's hyper-controlled. So in this case, you're feeding someone um, a bunch of oil of one type or another for a period of weeks, and you're watching a short-term marker. Of course, you're not going to develop cardiovascular disease in that short of a time. So you're having to use what's called a surrogate marker or a biomarker, in this case, LDL cholesterol, to see um, what happens to that marker in response to saturated fats. And the results are quite clear uh, that you know, substituting saturated fats for unsaturated fats will cause a positive change in your um, lipid profile. You ideally also want to see long-term studies, people who actually followed the diet for years and you actually watched cardiovascular disease develop. And we have some evidence for that as well, particularly with regards to the Mediterranean diet and, you know, randomized control trials showing positive heart health outcomes on diets that are rich in unsaturated fats. So, Coming back to that, you know, how strong is the scientific case for, for saturated fats and cardiovascular disease? We can check all of these boxes. We have all of the types of evidence that we want to see. But for heme iron and cancer, as, as a contrast, this is not the case. We don't have tightly controlled interventional studies. Those that argue that this is true, they are basing it on animal studies. Those animal studies are usually done with insanely toxic doses that are probably just due to too much iron. 
They're not done really at, you know, relevant doses. They're also based on observational studies, and really these tend to be very weak. Many of these studies don't even involve measuring heme iron directly. They just ask people, how much red meat do you eat? And use that somehow as their indicator of how much heme someone's consuming. So there are really, we don't, we can't check all the boxes and even the boxes that we can check are rather weak. Moving on to the second part that I think is essential to any analysis of a, of a health claim is how strong is the counter argument. I always try to look at the other side of the coin and with saturated fat and cardiovascular disease, there certainly are people who believe that there is no link. And when you dig into those um, counter arguments and the studies that don't find an association, they can typically be explained um, based on modifiers. For example, the fact that replacing saturated fats with unsaturated fats is quite con- consistently positive. But if you replace those saturated fats with um, you know, sugars instead, it's not a positive. And so if you, you really often have to get more into the weeds to understand those studies that don't find the association and see if, if they can still be consistent with your hypothesis. And in the case of cardiovascular disease and saturated fat, I believe that that's true, that these counter studies can be explained. But again, contrasting that to heme iron and cancer, um, there are some pretty strong counter arguments against this claim. One of the strongest in my opinion, is the fact that there are a number of other foods that have even more heme iron than red meat. Those include clams, oysters, and mussels, and we don't see any association with colorectal cancer and those foods. Same goes for chicken, actually. Some forms of chicken uh, do have heme iron in them as well, and we don't see a link to cancer with those foods as well. So cardiovascular disease and health, just in short, we have a strong body of evidence. We have a weak counterargument. Something like heme iron, we have a weak body of evidence and a strong counterargument. It's a very different scenario. So I'm sorry for the very long-winded answer to this question, but I obviously feel really strongly about scientific literacy. I think it is vital for making healthy choices. And this basic approach that I just described for this one question, it can be applied to tackle every type of health-related decision, not just diet, but also things like vaccines and other public health questions like masking. It's really important to look at the mosaic of evidence and to look at what the appropriate experts are saying. Yeah, that's a great point. We should be looking to the preponderance of data that's coming from the relevant sources. Now, I do want to switch gears and talk more about meat alternatives. So you've got your Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers, they're coming out, they're becoming more popular, and they're mainly geared toward not necessarily vegans and and vegetarians, but for meat eaters and flexitarians and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got your cultured meats, which you referenced to, they're just on the horizon here. Mm -hmm. So what, what uh, you said, you know, we don't have a lot of data on this type of stuff Mm -hmm. yet, I guess, especially for like long-term studies, but what, what do we know? And do you think that that's, it's worth making that swap? I just want to, whenever I speak about this topic, I always want to bring up again, that is the comparator that matters. So if, if the question is, are these healthy? Well, instead of what, what would you be eating otherwise? So if someone's going to be normally eating a lentil burger instead, it's probably a negative to eat, to shoot, to swap that out and eat a, you know, impossible or beyond burger instead. The reason I say that is because the beyond and impossible burger, they have virtually no fiber. Um, which is one of the main benefits of whole plants. They also have pretty, you know, decent, they have some amounts of saturated fats, which comes from coconut oil, which is a little different than the saturated fats in uh, meat, but not the jury is out on coconut oil, but it 
the suggestion is it probably should be lumped together. The assumption should be that it's a, it's a saturated fat to be not consumed in excess. So compared to a lentil burger, you know, it's going to be a step down, but it's not, but I also wouldn't say it's toxic, right? I have no, I think that this concept that anything processed is toxic is very much overstated. And I think that there's, we really need to, we really need to tackle that in, in a more nuanced way and think about like natural versus processed. I, I could, I could talk about that for an hour, but that's something that I really ask people to think more, more um, to be careful about black and white thinking really that anything from nature must be good and anything from that has a human touch must be bad. So, so as I said, probably a step down compared to a lentil burger, because with the lentil burger, you're going to get the fiber and probably some of the more, some of the phytonutrients can be more intact, but compared to a beef burger, which is actually the target audience, as you mentioned, it will probably be a positive. And we can't say hundred percent how much, right? We know we're getting a little bit less um, saturated fat and it's going to come from coconut oil instead, which is maybe a benefit, but really we're also, we're, we're not going to get whatever that bad meat package is, which we don't really understand what it is, which makes it hard to predict how much of a benefit it is. We do have, as far as I know, there's only been one study actually testing and it's only, and it's a short-term study um, called the swap meat study where they did compare, they enrolled, uh, this is a Stanford study funded by beyond meat. Um, they, they was with Christopher Gardner involved, who is, who I really um, admire and respect. So the study and took 36 people and it was called, a, it was a randomized crossover design, which means that they were assigned to one diet for eight weeks, and then they were switched and assigned to the other diet. So for eight weeks, they would eat two or more servings a day of meat products. And then in the other period, they would be consuming two or more servings a day of the of various beyond meat products. And they tried to match them for like basic nutrient profiles. So they, and they did find an improvement on the plant-based diet and in your cholesterol and LDL cholesterol levels were lower when these people consumed the plant-based diet. So that that's a good sign. That's kind of what they were hoping to see. Anyways, that bodes well, but we don't really know beyond that relatively yeah. short-term study, what, you know, might, what you might expect. So I, I know there will be more long-term studies on this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we need more and I'm sure there will be some coming again. I think it's important to, to go back to your summary from before it's, it's, it's the compared to what, so yeah, if you're eating a beyond burger versus a beef burger, sure. But it, the lentil burger, the black bean burgers, of course, you know, the fiber and everything else, it's mm -hmm. a whole food mm -hmm. too. And then I also thought it was interesting when you said about the processing, I you're right. I don't think a lot of people think about that because soy products, tofu, like those things are processed or, or hummus is processed mm -hmm. and they're generally pretty healthy things. So mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to put those, everything in context, you know, definitely. And one more thing to say on the health value of these burgers is yeah. that it really depends on the way the burgers served the whole meal because uh, I was, I did an, in my, I have an article on this when I did a nutrition summary and take it sodium, for example. So these, this impossible and beyond burgers get criticized for being high sodium, but the patty is only about a third of the sodium of a burger. When you go to a, when you get a fast food burger, the, the bun and the toppings, those are way more a driver of the sodium. So I do eat these burgers at home um, occasionally, but I usually preserve them on top of a salad. That's just, I love burger salads actually. Yeah. In, in general, these burgers, I think they really have a role to play in people who miss meat, you know, people who have a taste for meat. And my husband is a perfect example. He grew up eating a lot of meat. He loves the taste of meat, but he's chosen not to eat it, but he misses it. Versus me, I grew up vegetarian. I don't miss it. It's 
I could take it or leave it, but I don't mind having a mimic now and again. And that's because he enjoys it. But I, anyways, I'm just not a big burger person. So I'm just as happy to have a burger cut up on top of my salad. I could do a bean burger or I can do a beyond burger, whatever we have. Um, but I, it upsets me to hear vegans sort of dissing these products and saying it's a disgusting, you know, thought why these products shouldn't exist just because you have no desire for them doesn't mean they can't do a lot of good for people who actually do have a taste for meat and have a reason it allows them to, to make the difference that they want to make while sort of have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. Yeah. I've always found that a bit nonsensical uh, of an argument. And then, and then also to your point, you know, you said like, you got to think about what comes with the burger, the bun, mm-hmm. the cheese, people put mm-hmm. mayonnaise on things. There's oh, yeah. French fries that come with it. So yeah, it's, there's, there's all those other things. Exactly. Yeah. So sorry. One more thing on this. Yeah. A lot of these patties, like I just said, my, for my own example, you can, if you want to do the sort of a healthier version of it, probably just make it at home, right. You can have it on a whole wheat bun, you, you know, nothing wrong with a whole wheat bun, fresh lettuce and tomato that that's, that's not an issue, but you know, if you're making a habit of going three times a week to a that's probably going to take a bigger toll on your health than if you're cooking them at home now and again, and having a big salad on the side, right. It's just that the whole meal really matters just to, to expand on the role that these, these products play. They have a massive environmental benefit over, over the meat alternative, um, something like 96% less land and 90% less greenhouse emissions, 90% less water. They also, I think this role isn't touted enough. They can also have a role to play in antibiotic stewardship, right? Of course, if you're having a plant-based burger instead of a meat one, you are not using antibiotics on to grow the meat. And in terms of foodborne illness, I would argue that these are sort of safer to consume because they're reducing, like you don't have fecal contamination, right? So they have a lot of advantage. I think the health advantage over meat is probably less so. It's probably there, but minor, but there are huge advantages environmentally. I interviewed on my podcast, Dr. Nicola Guest, who's a dietitian in the UK. And she said in the UK, most people are eating these primarily for environmental reasons, not because they think that they're going to transform their health overnight by swapping their patty. Yeah. Yeah. Very timely too, with um, the pandemic and everything, zoonotic diseases. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I like to do before I, before I let my guests go is I like to ask if somebody has been listening to this conversation and they're interested in making a change. And in particular, we've talked a lot about uh, meat consumption, protein, and they're interested in cutting down on their meat consumption. I always like to ask what some, what are some, you know, basic uh, tips that somebody can use at home? Let's listening to this. You did just mention in your last answer, like how you like to prepare a beyond burger or something like that. If you mm-hmm. do eat it on, you know, mm-hmm. on occasion, um, healthier ways, but what are some other, I guess, um, popular protein uh, packed dishes that you yeah. recommend? Soy is probably my number one. So my kids and I, we all drink soy milk and it, and soy milk is not only a great protein source, but it's also typically fortified. So you're going to get B12, um, vitamin D calcium. It's that's, that's like a, a staple in our home. We also, I also do a quick pan fried tofu that my kids like, and it's super easy. I just saute tofu. And then I add like a splash of soy sauce at the end. And it just kind of sizzles and, and makes it a bit gold. That's um, very quick and easy. We also just, I always keep edamame in the freezer, shelled edamame, and I throw that on top of my salads. My son really likes bean burgers. So we also keep those on hand. 
yeah, those are, those are my favorites. And if you still have, if you still really enjoy the taste and texture and decadence of meat, they don't feel guilty about these alternatives. My husband, we keep also in our fridge, mostly for my husband's hankerings, you know, beyond sausages, he finds them to be really so satisfying. Uh, and so my freezer always has a couple of, you know, fake meat things, but also whole plant-based tofu versions, um, in the fridge. Dr. Davis, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot today and I really, um, appreciate how you can break down these complicated nuanced issues and, and really explain them in a, in a, in a basic way. And I'm definitely going to recommend our listeners to check out uh, fueled by science and we'll link that all below. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.